Hello, and welcome to the International Sonography Podcast, the podcast all about the occupation of diagnostic medical ultrasound all over the globe. I'm your host, Jamie Fujikawa. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the International Sonography Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Fujikawa, and with me, as always, is Lorinda Andrist. We hope you got to listen to parts one through four of Joan Baker's interview on episode two. Today, we have a special guest with us on episode three. We wanted to do a show about ergonomics. The numbers say that 90% of sonographers experience work-related injuries and that 20% of those can actually be career-ending. So we know ergonomics and musculoskeletal injuries are of utmost importance in the occupation. And today we have with us Mrs. Carolyn Coffin. Carolyn's been in the field since 1987. She's been an educator um, as well as a program director at Seattle University Ultrasound Program. She's also been involved with the SDMS and many committees, um, including the JRCDMS and the JDMS. And now she's also the uh, co-CEO of Sound Ergonomics. So thank you so much for joining us today, Carolyn, and we can't wait to talk with you. Carolyn, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you were introduced to the world of sonography? Well, sure. I have a pretty varied background. Probably like every new high school graduate, I, I went to college not having any idea what I wanted to do, but I was pretty interested in something related to medicine. So I got a degree and then went to work for a physician for a while and made my way into x-ray, which I found pretty fascinating. So medical imaging kind of came around, came about uh, kind of through my interest in medicine. And I wasn't really aware that much of ultrasound, although the physician I worked for was an obstetrician and ultrasound had just made its way into his practice. It wasn't something that we had in the office. There was one hospital in, in Boston, which is where we were working, that did ultrasound. And it was only when there was something clinically wrong um, that they referred the patients to this hospital. So I didn't know a lot about it, but I enjoyed the medical imaging. And then um, after about, I don't know, maybe four years, uh, I decided I wanted to do something a little bit more with my medical imaging. And my goal was actually to do x-ray and ultrasound together Mm -hmm. in a small community. So I trained in Denver at the University of Colorado. Um, And of course, big cities don't really blend x-ray and ultrasound in the same department. So I ended up working exclusively in ultrasound. Um, And I missed doing x-ray, but after a while, the creativity of ultrasound just kept me enthralled and kept me interested. And then I had the opportunity to teach. And so it's just kind of evolved from there into clinical practice and then teaching. So I kind of fell into it probably like a lot of uh, people that have gone into medical imaging, you know, just curiosity more than anything else. Sure. For me, the opportunity to be creative. I like creative things. And it was, to me, it was like a very creative form of medical imaging and a little bit of detective work, which I found fascinating. So that's how I ended up in it. Well, that's great. Well, when did you and Joan Baker first meet? I met Joan actually when I was a novice board member um, for the SEMS board of directors. And she was, she was not president at the time, but she was on the board. And um, I remember her bringing up discussions at board meetings 
about phone calls that she had gotten from sonographers who were out in the field and were having pain. And some of them, some of their stories were very heart wrenching. I mean, they had so much pain that they couldn't even unload the dishwasher or do household chores or prepare dinner. And, and it was very, um, it was very sad to listen to this and to think that it was related to a job and a profession that they really liked. So she brought this up, the one and only person who had really championed this and was talking to the board about we should start something like a, a committee or an organization or something within our, our, um, our board to address these injuries or at least to respond to these members. Mm-hmm. And at the time I was working on my master's degree and I thought, wow, this would be a great adjunct for my master's degree because I wanted to do something related to ultrasound, but that was public health because that was what my degree was in. And so I talked to her, I said, can I work with you on this? I'm interested in it and I'd like to pursue something related to educating the public about it. So we started working together and my master's capstone project was an educational tape that she and I worked on and had uh, produced. Um, And it just kind of went from there. She was living in Washington. I was living in Colorado. We just stayed in touch, um, conference calls, and occasionally I'd fly out. And we just started doing some stuff um, together. So what, so the, the inspiration for sound ergonomics came first from those phone calls, but then you guys getting together and realize that this is a larger issue than people were realizing. It, yeah, it was. And, and she felt that, you know, we ought to consider looking at um, starting some kind of a business that would provide education. We weren't really, you know, I, I guess it's like every endeavor. It sometimes goes, it has a life of its own and it sometimes goes in directions that you know, mm-hmm. you hadn't initially, <laughs> you hadn't initially planned. And initially we just wanted to create education and we created educational tapes and, and some lectures, some lectures that schools could use for their students. And that was our, our main goal. And in, in the, uh, the course of that, we talked about how to make yourself comfortable. You need to sit in a comfortable chair. You need to have the right height of, Exam room equipment. You need to set the ultrasound system up in certain ways to make your your um, reach less uh, less far. And people would say, "Well, that's great, but where do I get the chair? What kind of chair?" And we thought, "Well, you know, if we're going to recommend these, we really ought to have some idea what works." Yes. Yeah. So then that kind of evolved into a product line. So. Well, which in which ways has the knowledge about MSI influenced occupation um, changes over the last twenty years? What what have you seen? Where have you seen the biggest impact um, on ergonomic education in the field? Who? That's a hard question to answer because I don't think I don't think we've made as big of inroads as we would like to have made. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the biggest impact, unfortunately, comes after the injury. So it's like, you know, deciding to wear your, wear your seatbelt after you've already been thrown through the windshield. I think our biggest impact is in making people who are currently injured more comfortable going back to work sure. or, or working. I would love to see the impact stretch a little farther. There are lots of voices in the, in the woods, kind of single voices in the woods that are trying very hard to make their staff comfortable, um, leads sonographers in small hospital settings or even in some larger ones have really 
you know, championed their workers and said, you know, we're going to get somebody in here to look at how you work and to advise us on how to set up the room and stuff like that. But they often don't get the support that they need. And I think the awareness of it is there. I think the support for it beyond the sonographers isn't as strong as we'd like to see it. So I see it as, as getting slowly better, but it's not going as fast as I'd like it. And there's just a lot of obstacles that get in the way of that. You know, you can be, it's interesting. I had an email just a couple of days ago. So a sonographer was telling me that um, she said, I want your advice on, on what we're doing. We're being asked to do 16 and 19 patients a day. And this is a general lab. I know. And the first thing that always comes to my mind when they, when I hear that is, are you doing a good job regardless yeah, of the sure. yeah. I don't think any of us, any of the three of us could do that many patients and, and really be comfortable that we had seen everything. Yeah. Um, I just worry that, that this increased volume is going to lead to, you know, things that get missed. And, and I don't know, the patients can't feel like they're getting the full attention. <laughs> and those are things I mentioned to her, but, but I told her, I said, you know, everybody asks me what's the best or the right number of exams to do. And, and in point of fact, there is no right number because, you know, a, a set of twins takes, what, an hour, yeah. an hour infinite. If you're a general lab, you're going to do a thyroid, you know, one exam, and then maybe you're going to do a full abdominal scan, then maybe just a quick uh, spleen, left upper quadrant, you know, who knows. But the, I guess the rule of thumb for us is um, any exam, one exam is too many if you're not using good body posture. So if you can fit that many patients into a schedule and you're using good body postures, then it really isn't too many. Um, yeah. From a yeah. body perspective, it's too many from a lot of other perspectives. Well, and provided also with that, that you have the correct equipment too. Right, right, right. But you know, all the best equipment in the world is only as good as your, your willingness to make the changes in it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I went into a lab that in, um, in I think it was in California, and I was watching the sonographers and they had a state-of-the-art piece of equipment and it moved and the art, the monitor was articulated, the arm was articulated and you could, and they never changed anything. <laughs> and I walked and this poor person was like leaning over, you know, and scanning and looking back at the monitor. And I said, you know, you can just raise it and go over here like this. So it's in front of you. And you would have thought I just handed her a million dollars. She just went crazy. She said, wow, it can do that. And I thought, wow, you know, this is why, it's a, it's a delicate balance, and it's one that, you know, Joan and I are often put in a position kind of of arbitration between staff who are angry about what they're doing and how much they're doing and management who needs that productivity in order to maintain the staff. So, yes. you know, we basically make them realize that if they spend the extra time and money to make the environment ergonomic and reinforce it constantly, they really can have more productivity, um, within the staff. So it's, it's a delicate balance. It's like anything, but yeah. uh, you know, once it becomes more enforced, like you go into places and they all wear the lifting belts, you know, like in a warehouse and, or hard hats on a job site, you can't go on a job site without a hard hat. So at yeah. some point there needs to be, you can't scan without doing this first or something similar. What do you wish that you had had impact on in the last 20 years that has been sort of the pie in the sky that you haven't reached. Um, 
upper management. It's, I would, you know, I've tried to put some articles in certain journals that address management, like the AHRA's journal. Um, We've tried to have conversations. A lot of the managers that are sonographers get it, but the managers who aren't sonographers, who are business people or nurses, don't get it. Um, And I wish we had had more of an impact on, and and maybe it's not even the lead sonographer, maybe it's a step above that person, but having more impact on, on their awareness and what they should be looking for and how they should support it. Because it's not just saying, this is how you do it, good luck, and sending them on their way because we'll all not do it after we're not being watched. It's really having a compliance team made up of the department's peers for that the manager makes, um, you know, responsible for looking and uh, following stenographers, making sure that they're making the changes and then reporting back to management. I wish we had been able to, and we're still trying, but I wish we could set up some kind of a program that managers would use and which is something that I'm kind of working on, but that, that they would build into whatever is required on a regular basis for their, for their staff. And it's just educating them. Um, and I have a great example of this. We, we had a manager of a large hospital group and he didn't believe any of this. He was actually kind of arguing that it's not, it has nothing to do with the work and, and arguing. And this went on for a couple of, you know, maybe a couple of years every time we saw this gentleman. And finally, we broke him down and he said, okay, let's do uh, some site evaluation. And of course, management is always afraid that we're going to come in and tell them they have to buy all new equipment, which is not the case. We come in and tell them how to work within the environment that they have, how to maybe rearrange the room. But, you know, they have to work with what they have and they can do that. And like I mentioned earlier, if they don't adjust things, even brand new equipment is of no use to them. So I think the and they, and he was also afraid that we would tell the staff or tell the management that they had to do less patients, which wasn't the case. We actually went in and reviewed their schedule and took one of their breaks out because we said, if you do this, you can actually add a patient here, et cetera. And um, after we did this, I mean, me management was on one side of the team and the sonographers were angry and, you know, it was like we were stuck in the middle. After we did that, they chose a person to kind of be a compliance monitor, and she was going to watch all this periodically, make sure everybody was using good postures. We saw this person maybe a year or two later, and he was thrilled. He said, sonographers that had left because they, the morale was so low had come back, and their injury rate had gone down. So he was a believer. But it took a lot of you know, pushing to get him to see that, we weren't coming in there and we don't go in there and cut down on their patient load. We go in there and improve the work environment with what's currently in existence. There's so many factors that go into it that, you know, we have to be sensitive to. I mean, management does have their financial responsibility for their department and for not only supplies and, and you know, the being um, somewhat profitable, but also patient satisfaction and those kinds of things. And so we have to look at all that um, when we go in and work with them. And I think it's, it's just, it's not as simple as just saying, 
well, we're going to tell you all about this and and then go do it. It really is. It's a whole culture change. It's a whole um, awareness change. It's a whole scope of, of everybody trying to work together, but understanding what, what goes into it and what sure. is beneficial and what isn't. And so it takes more than just a CME education. It takes a lot. And I, so it takes a long time, but back to your original question, Lorinda, it's management that we would love to have had and still are trying to have a bigger impact with. Would you say since you've started Sound Ergonomics, um, you know, back in the day when you guys first started to look into MSI that they have done a better job at um, making sure their employees are protected early on? I think some of them have. And I, I should qualify by saying perhaps Sound Ergonomics hasn't done as strong a job as we could have to reach the administrators. Um, it's partly knowing what meetings they go to and where to get the information to them. Sure. Um, so part of that's probably our fault, but I think, I think the ones that are seeing turnover are, are starting to see a lot of workers comp claims are starting to really appreciate the value of a cheaper solution than workers comp. Let's look at, you know, uh, a better chair for you. Let's look at um, maybe having somebody come in for a day and work with you. You know, so I think, again, it all circles back to money. They have a position where they are uh, responsible for a lot of the financial health of the department and uh, contribute to the health of the entire uh, institution's financial picture. So I, I don't fault them for anything. I just think that um, they need to be a little bit more um aware and keep and and listen a little closer to the sonographers and and then the sonographers also have to report things they have to make sure it gets higher up and the administration realizes that this is a costly injury for a lot of reasons yeah Um, but all too often it doesn't reach them either the sonographers don't report it to their to their department manager or the department manager doesn't go anywhere with it but i think a lot of administrators are, are good business people. And I think they realize the commodity is not just that the, the sonographers are a big commodity for them. And it's, it's not just what they can produce, but how comfortable they are doing it that makes for the success of that department. So I don't, I don't, I think they just need to be told by sure. the sonographers that these yeah. are issues and they need to maybe be open to sitting down with them. How can we work together to make these issues go away? Yeah. Sonographers just get injured and are out. And all of a sudden administration says, where's Jamie? Isn't she here? Oh no, she's on disability for two months. Oh no. That's why, you know, we are backed up in the schedule. And absolutely. I just don't think it's, I think it's a lack of communication in the whole cycle and somehow we need to work on that. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like advocacy for us or our voice needs to be louder than the bottom line that they're getting on the other side, you know? So we're always telling sonographers keep a log of what exam you did, like a little pocket card or something, what exam you did that caused pain, what time of day, how long the exam took, you know, just things that you can say, you know, this seems to be what's going on with me when I scan. Is there a way we can address this? And sure. you always have to come at, you know, well, none of us are good at this, but you always have to come at them in a positive way. Sure. You don't want to go up to somebody and say, 
you need to do something about this or I'm going to be, you know, injured out of the job. You say, I've had some injury issues and I wonder if we could work together to look at what's causing them or help me figure this out. Sure. And, you know, we're just not good at that. None of us are. Yeah. And, you know, so like I said earlier, it's, it's such a complicated issue to try to bring all the forces together to sit down at the table and solve the problem. Once it's solved, you know, it's, it's easy. It's just getting everybody on board. Now coming, just coming out of being in the education, um, you know, side of it in the program, is there anything that you guys are doing now at that time where they're in school learning about scanning that they have, that they weren't doing before that you wish you could be implying, I'm sorry, implementing into the program so that they come out of school being, you know, hyper aware of what can be used to make longevity in their body and career? Well, you know, we, um, and the schools have actually been pretty good about this. We do uh, ergonomics lectures. We watch them scan. I've taken pictures of them scanning and showed them themselves, you know, what they look like <laughs> and what their body postures look like. And I'm sure other programs do similar things. I know a lot of the programs, when I, when I do sit down and talk with educators just casually at conferences, you know, they do emphasize it. They do have um, a lot of the aids, you know, support for the arm and stuff like that. And the students are really good about it. But when they walk out the door to internship, it all goes away. They come back to me and they come back to me and say, my clinical instructor asked me why I have to hold the transducer this way or why I can't hold it that way or why I can't put the cord around my neck. And, you know, they're afraid to go against the clinical instructor because that's who's grading them. So at the end of their year internship, Mm -hmm. they have all these bad habits. Yeah, but that's one of those kind of things that you have to keep kind of taking those steps forward because eventually that clinical instructor will come from the generation, you know, of people who were taught um, MSI prevention in school and remember, oh yeah, even if I haven't been using that the last 15 years, I remember learning about that and we're going to go back to focusing on that, you know, so so keep doing what you're doing because I think it's great. I was lucky enough to have Lorinda as my clinical instructor and she, you know, I think her experiencing her own injury yeah. made us at that time, you know, that, that, that subject be right up at the front of when she was educating us, it was first, wait, before you even start the scan, look at what you're doing and look at your, look around you and what's going on and what's going to help you, um, you know, do a better scan for the patient and for your body. Well, it was the, uh, correlation of, uh, sitting down with Joan and Carolyn at board meetings and hearing about it and all the, uh, peripheral things as well. And so it it sunk into my head as like, yes, this needs to be, uh, widespread, uh, not only with my intern, but with my staff too. Yeah, that's good. Well, Lorinda's one of, of a million, so. (laughs) I know, right? More of her, but you know, if you compare it to driving your car in the morning, you know, it's such a habit now for us to put on our seatbelt and, um, you know, just the mirror and just the seat of somebody has stood your car before you. It's a habit. You just do it. You don't go anywhere. Even if you're running late for work, you don't go anywhere until you do that. And so I compare that to getting ready to scan. It just takes those few seconds. You've got the time to do it. You shouldn't go anywhere with your transducer until everything is your size and fit to you. Sure. But like you said, once you get into the habit, then it feels just weird when you're not being ergonomic. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah. I think they've made um, they've made probably more than any group of people in the business. They've made a concerted effort to get the students right at their at their starting point. 
most many, many schools, and I can't say all of them, but a large number of them do um, do a presentation on ergonomics because they do chat with me occasionally about about that. And they we actually have a set of slides that, you know, is a product that they can get for and modify however they want. Um, we're happy to do webinars for their classes if they want. Um, so they do teach it. It's, um, it's in the accreditation guidelines, so they do teach it. And um, there are some programs that actually have student kits that have exercise components and, you know, exercise cards and things that they put together, that we put together for them. And like they have their name on them. Let's say that we have one for XYZ college and that college wants this, this, and this in the kit. So the students order the kit with their college name. And then they, they together before they start the day or start the lab, they exercise and loosen up. So those are some of the things that um, the schools are doing. I think they're doing a good job. But like we said earlier, once we turn them loose to the, yeah. the CIs, yeah. especially CIs that have been in the field for 20, 25 years, it's, it's really their fear of, of the environment and their fear of being uh, graded by not following their CIs instructions often causes the ergonomics to kind of sink to the bottom of the list. Sure, sure. <laughs> we definitely em- emphasize, um, you know, the importance of that. It's interesting because um, patient care and patient comfort has always been the first and foremost uh, issue with, with caregivers. I know I was watching a, a lab. I was up in the nursing lab watching because our students had gone up to participate in learning blood pressures and stuff like that with their students. And they were sitting on these stools that were, you know, too low. And they were reaching up to the patient that was the model on the bed. And I said, you know, there's an ergonomic issue here. Why don't you do this? Oh, no, we can't do that. The patient could fall off the bed. It's like thinking that you sacrifice yourself at all costs. Yeah. And that's really not the best way to think because if, if we lose our experienced caregivers to the field, you've lost patient care quality, you know, and, and, you know, you want somebody with lots of experience. And so you want to be sure that you take care of that. So you really want to think of them first and we're trying to change that mentality because I don't know about you, but if I'm tired or I'm sore, I'm grouchy. But then you have a bad attitude. The patients pick up on that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, you know, you, you can go in and say, for instance, um, say, can you scoot over a little closer to me? I'm really having a hard time reaching. You know, this chair is just too low. And the patient will say, wow, you should get a new chair. Oh, management just won't listen to me. Uh, so this kind of stuff, this is the attitude you have, you know, and it just starts. It start, yeah. The patient's sitting here saying, wow, she's really happy to be here. And so, you know, those are, you don't think about that, but those are all related. Well, which factors have seemed to, you talked a little bit about this as far as um, management, uh, allowing patient numbers and break time and all that, but what um, things have seemed to exasperate MSI um, for sonographers within the field over the last, you know, couple decades? A couple issues. One is all of our work is computer-based. The ultrasound system is computerized. You go to your workstation where you do your reporting, and that's a computer. You um, take your lunch break and decide to check your emails. That's a computer. And so all of that environment and all those activities contribute to the injury. Sure. So in theory, you know, you're, not only your ultrasound workstation has to be ergonomic, but where you do your reporting, where you do your checking your um, films, 
your images, all that has to also be addressed and you have to use height adjustable equipment there, but you really shouldn't use your brakes to do the same activity. Brakes should really be used for, aside from eating lunch, they should be used for walk, going for a walk, sure. uh, maybe doing some quick exercises, sitting down outside, maybe with a book, you know, to get that muscle recovery time because you have so little time to do that. Sure. And in, in down in downtime between patients shouldn't be used for personal computing. Sure. Yeah. 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 Also staring. I don't know if you guys ever address uh, the vision part of it, but it's also just screen staring or what I call, you know, whether it's on the computer, the ultrasound machine, your phone, just constant, um, you know, Actually, we do because, um, you know, if you don't take care of the visual side of it, it, it leads to strain in the neck and shoulders, but we recommend that people stop. Um, it's called the 2020 rule. They stop uh, maybe every 20 minutes and look 20 feet ahead of themselves you know, at the ground for 20 seconds sure. and it just gives your eyes a chance to refocus and look at something different. What you think, even if you're um, just typing on the computer, just take that quick break. Um, yeah. And I, I, that's an easy thing to do and people should do that more often. In your opinion, how much does increased body habitus contribute to MSI and sonographers? For the patient's body habitus, so the sonographers. Patients' body habit. Well, hey, we could talk about both, right? We could talk <laughs> about the, the shape that a sonographer's in to keep their body um, flexible, limber, and in shape, but also um, how the patient um, size, morbid obesity has affected injury upon the sonographer. You know, that's, um, that's an interesting question because to be honest with you, people always tell me, oh, we have all these obese patients and I have to push so hard. And I sit there and think about how does pushing really help? Because if you push really hard, let's say you're trying to see the aorta on, a, on an obese person for aneurysm. You can push, but you're going to reduce the distance to the aorta by a quarter of an inch. Yeah. Is that really, Yeah. is the value of that worth the extra strain on your arm? Yeah. You know, in reality, the only extra pushing, quote unquote, that you need to do is for venous exams, for lower extremity venous exams, where you're pushing on the on the vein. And what, what we recommend is that people stand up, get high above whatever they're pushing on, and push down instead of out and down. You know, and that's but pushing on the patient, first of all, is uncomfortable for them. And mm-hmm. the patients have I've had I've heard of patient complaining about it. And in all honesty, it's not gonna you can't push far enough down to get any closer to the aorta to improve the image. You may be able to move some bowel gas around, but even then you've got the layer of subcutaneous fat that you're dealing with. And all you're doing is pushing on that. You're not really getting closer to the body part. So I think this concept that we have to push is over exaggerated. Number one, there's just, it's ultrasound. It's not magic. There's just some patients you're never going to be able to see stuff on and you have to know when to quit. Sure. Uh, if it's dire that they have some kind of imaging, then they'll have to go to something that is more penetrable, like MR or CT, I guess. Sure. Uh, you know, except for obviously OB patients, but uh, still, you're not going to you're not going to impact the subcutaneous fat that is contributing to the obesity. Sure. Now, let's look at the sonographer, the worker obesity. There's um, there's literature that says that if you're um, body mass index is greater than 30. Um, and so you're considered obese. 
you have the work, physical work capabilities of somebody 20 years older than you. So if you're 30 with a BMI of 30, your physical work capabilities are as equal to someone who's 50. So our own obesity contributes to joint strain, um, extra weight on the joints, which contributes to injury also. So it's not just the patient's. So in terms of uh, like the obstetrical patient, somebody that, you know, you feel like, well, I do need to get these images at, at some point. Do you guys stress possibly doing, um, uh, you know, using your, all your adjustments on the machine? Because I know like that's when really the physics that you learned in the school that you kind of use to pass the boards and then sometimes forget and expect your auto-optimized button just to, to do it for you. But to really have the sonographers be knowledgeable about the equipment and how do I maximize my penetration without pushing. Oh, absolutely. I think, um, you know, I think any good sonographer should start with that. They should start with image optimization. And I always tell my students, if you, if you see something that looks different or you're not seeing it well, assume that it's your, something you're doing wrong and that's not the patient. And, And then that will cause you to think of everything you need to think of in order to make the image quality improve. Um, and, you know, the equipment today has so many great features for image optimization that it should be, uh, it sh- they should really work very hard. And actually, I- I'm a little bit in favor of having CMEs that are related to physics, you know, so that we're yeah. constantly being reminded of what we have to do to improve the image quality without, you know, assuming that we have to push or whatever. No, I agree. I think that's, that's key. The only problem with obese patients, though, especially when you're trying to get images um, for OB patients, is that we tend to often go to the 2.5 megahertz, 225 megahertz transducer, which has got a very small grip. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult to hold that transducer comfortably for, sh- for long periods of time. Yeah. So that's my big concern about, you know, all this push to try to get the images. At some point, you know, you have to stop, even if you have to stop and take a break come back to the patient later, have somebody else come in. I just think that um, once you start to feel uncomfortable holding a transducer that's too small or trying to scan an obese patient, there has to be a point at which you take a break from that. Yeah. Um, and I mean, liability of, of the scan, don't you think so too? Because how, And then how much do we feel like, well, I think I saw it okay versus like, let's bring them back in six weeks when we can image this and make sure that we can exactly. see the diaphragm and not just say, yeah, it looks like it's there. Exactly. You know, if you don't see yeah. the kidneys um, sure. and the bladder doesn't fill or some, you know, yeah. something related to an anatomical structure that you can't see well, you know, yeah, I agree. I think, you know, if there's no real serious concerns about a big anomaly, then if you want to see it better, I think just letting them come back definitely has to be, there has to be a line um, yeah. that once, and, a, and a, a threshold that once you reach that there's nothing else we can do. And, you know, that threshold has to include your physical stamina. Yeah. I mean, the, the CMEs on physics is actually a really cool thing. I mean, I think as a student, I remember the word physics still kind of makes me tremble a little bit, but I think it's because of the math. Like in school, I thought it was all about knowing this equation, being able to calculate this. I didn't really understand what any of it meant, like in terms of why I would need to know how to maximize penetration, you know, and now, and you're talking to a sonographer that scanned and really ran into the real life issues around penetration and and resolution to now take a CME and say, 
you know, how would you on your equipment, what would be the best tool to start when you have a difficult scan patient, you know, and, and, and be able to have that knowledge. That's real applicable knowledge. I don't think a CMA should contain much math because, you know, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. one of the things that I've seen, and I think it points to um, either forgetting the physics or not understanding the, um, the, the equipment and, and, you know, the, the, operation or the instrumentation of it. I've seen a couple of times where I've just been at a site visit doing the ergonomic side of it and watching a sonographer scanning with a transducer that has like this fuzzy little line down it and a kind of a mosaic color pattern Mm -hmm. and not knowing what that was and not realizing that they had a broken crystal and that it was, uh, it was causing, you know, an artifact in the image. And, you know, I remember saying, to a couple of them, what, what's going on with your transducer? Oh, I don't know. There's just this interference. And it's like, no, you, know, you need to know what's going on with your equipment. So Absolutely. I think that, I think that knowing the physics and it teaches you a lot more than just the physics. It teaches you how to optimize your image. It teaches you how to recognize when things are not sure. working well sure. and, you know, troubleshooting them. I, I think that, yeah, I think physics CMEs might be kind of, kind of a good thing to yeah I, I agree yeah well ha- what injuries have you personally had over the years yeah. um from you know all these years that you've put in you know I was pretty I was pretty lucky I stood up a lot and I'm not I'm about five five maybe at one point a little bit taller than that mm-hmm. um so I was right in the center of the bell curve for what equipment is for who equipment is built for so you know it was adjustable around me. So it was pretty easy to get comfortable. But the one injury that I did have was um, uh, medial um, epicondylitis on my scanning arm. And that was, I scanned for 11 years before we started staffing the perinatal um, high-risk OB um, clinic. And we would rotate up there one day a week. There'd be two of us, either one day a week or two days a week. So we weren't doing it every single day, but we were doing it all day long, same types of exams. Mm-hmm. And after about two or three months of being in that clinic and doing so many endovaginal studies, um, after 11 years, I developed epicondylitis. And I did like everybody else. I just pushed through it. I put a, like a brace on my elbow and, and just struggled to get through it. But the problem is um, I'm extremely right-handed, and that's my right arm. And you would think that my right hand would be stronger. But after that injury, my white hand is, has lost a lot of grip strength still. Yes. Mm-hmm. It, it starts back up again if I do certain activities. Like even if I pull my luggage through the airport, it starts sure. back up. So, yeah. Uh, so you have to really protect that injury. To, yeah. You know, and to I mean, I have a, it, 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 they never really go away. Yeah. You know, unless it's a surgical repair. And even then, you know, it's, you've got some limited motion. Yeah. Well, what, what uh, sound ergonomic products have you, you think have been the most popular with sonographers out there in general? I think the two things that are the most popular, and it kind of goes through phases, but um, right now, of course, it's the chair that we um, like and that we recommend. Um, it's not our only chair. We have another one that we like, but um, they have different, they have different uses. Um, so we have two chairs, but the one that has, um, had a biggest impact is the saddle shaped chair. Mm -hmm. 
and the versatility of it. And the other product is um, our cable brace holder that the sonographers can wear to hold the cable brace when they're scanning. I don't know if you've seen it, but um, it looks kind of like a tennis elbow strap and you just slide it up and there's a, a, a little Velcro tab and you slide the cable under and, and put the tab down and it takes the torque off of the cable. And sure. that's a big cause for epicondylitis as well, because if the cable keeps pulling your hand over, you keep twisting it back and that's twisting the forearm against the epicondyle. So those are our two most popular um, that I can think of. But again, it goes through phases. You know, we'll have people really, really, really engaged for um, a year or so with ex- exercise products. Sure. Um, but for the most part, on an ongoing basis, those are our two big. Uh, and which, uh, what, what different modalities do you see different problems in? So vascular versus general. And I mean, obviously they, you know, when you've scanned both of those, you you use different arms, you you know, your patients are different. So the key is repetition is doing the same exam and same type of exam over and over. That's what leads to a higher risk for injury. So the sonographers with the lowest risk, and again, they all have a risk, but the lower risk are the labs where it's very, very um, variable, where they do pelvis, abdomen, thyroid, scrotum, a breast, uh, and it's all mixed in one day. And they, mm-hmm. they rotate to different equipment. So they use a lot of different things. And that consequently, they're using a lot of different muscle groups, allowing um, others to recover. The places where we see a little bit higher risk are places like adult echo, where they're doing the same type of exam all day long using the same muscles and um, high risk OB. Those are the two big ones. Yeah. Um, The vascular lab isn't quite as bad because there is a variety of exams. They'll do some abdominal vessels. They'll do some legs. They'll do some carotids. So they have a little more variety um, than the others. So they're not, but they're not totally uh, without their risk as well. Sure. And the other thing that really, um, and this kind of ties, this crosses everything we've talked about so far. This crosses into management. This crosses into sonographer posture. This crosses into equipment. And it crosses into exam type. But the one thing that has really, really um, gotten a little bit out of hand is bedside exams. And, you know, you can't set up a patient's room in a way that will allow you to get comfortable. Mm-hmm. The patients are in a bed that where they sink down in the bed, so you can't get them to the edge, even if they move. Um, <clears throat> you sometimes can't get the room dark enough, so you can't see well. Um, and you're pushing the equipment. Pushing has its own risk factors, pushing the equipment around. And so there's this, there's this belief that patients should just stay in their room and we should go to them because we can. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, you know, it's, it's not a good exam in a lot of ways because you're not getting in a comfortable position. You can't get the room dark enough. I remember doing in a room that didn't have the blinds didn't work and it was bright sunshine. Awesome. And mm-hmm. I, I really did scan with a towel over my head, like one of those. <laughs> the one of those hood. Yeah. I couldn't see. And I had to, I had to set my gain and, you know, my setting, yeah. and, you know, and I thought this is crazy. Yeah. And, you know, whether the patients can walk or not and whether they go down for lunch with their family has nothing to do with it. They still want them done in bedside. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure that's 
I don't, I'm not sure what the reason for that is other than they're taking space away from the ultrasound departments. Yeah. Uh, there is a solution for that, but trying to get people to carve out the space for it, any floor that has a large number of bedside exams being done on that floor, other than ICU, you can't move patients around, you know, in certain, that are in certain health um, conditions, but you could have a small room uh, on that floor that was is set up in a more ergonomic fashion that has a, a appropriate chair, sure. appropriate table. And then if you have to bring the equipment up, that's that's one thing. Or you can have a piece that you leave there and move from floor to floor, but not all the way down to the yeah. department. I mean, that's and the patient can just walk down there yeah. because patients are encouraged to get up and walk around if yeah. they can. Yeah. And um, there's no reason that that we couldn't make it more comfortable for the worker as well. So that's a, that's a management problem um, as well as just all the things that are inherent in not having a good room for, for sure. But that bedside adult echo and high risk OB are the three areas that are really at high risk. For sure. And I think I can make the argument even within the world of high risk OB is that, um, you know, we have fetal echoes, we have first trimesters, we have a BPP only, we have full scans, we have twins, you know, so what we try to do at our lab and and also we have a lead that that really tries to advocate for our well-being as well. And that's very helpful. Um, but she'll make sure that, you know, if one person had twins, then the next twins that comes up, we spread that out and, um, I'm the only one that does fetal echo in my lab right now. I'm hoping to have somebody else come in and try and, you know, do that with me so that um, I don't have all those. But, you know, we can do our part to be ergonomic during the scan, but also making sure that whoever determines the schedule or determines where people are going and what patients are being scanned, that they're spreading it out and not having just one person do all the outpatients and one person go up on the floor and do all the inpatients, but instead letting people switch around and, you know, giving breaks. And that's that's important. And that's a good point that I should have mentioned is the scheduling has to be controlled by the sonographers. Sure. You have to say, you have to sit down with whoever's going to handle the schedule and say, we can't do these kinds of exams together. You have to have a variety of exams throughout the day. And that's the best way. And then, and, but the thing is, you know, everybody thinks that it's so efficient to say, okay, well, Jamie, you're going to be in room one all day. And that just doesn't work. You know, it no. needs to, it, there needs to be, I don't have a problem with somebody having their own room all day. Yeah. Um, and they can set it up and it's perfect for them. Uh, for variety. But the, the cases coming through that room need yeah. to be, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Because even in adult echo where we did outpatients and inpatients, you know, there were different, there were TEEs and somebody in the cath lab. So just mixing that up for people and letting management know how that can impact, you know, has to roll from management to scheduling to the sonography, you know. Carolyn, I haven't heard you mention it, but it was one of the strategies that I don't know if it was, I came up with it from you and Joan or just a trial and error, but you know, I learned to scan both right and left-handed for just the high risk OB world uh, to give one side of my body a break and it bought me time. Um, Yeah. One reason I don't mention that is because people think that that's the solution but in point of fact, if you are scanning wrong with both arms, now you've got two injured arms. So if you're going to switch back and forth, you still need to reduce abduction, reduce reach, and not push. But Absolutely. if I just switch back and forth, I give my arm a chance to rest. Well, you know, you do, 
But if you're scanning in such a position that you're cutting off the oxygen supply to the muscles, it's not going to help. Resting isn't going to help. So I have no problem with people switching back and forth. But if I emphasize it too much, then people think it's a solution and they don't look at their posture and improve that. Right. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, I've had people say that like, well, why am I going to go destroy my other arm? And the, the truth is, you know, if you learn to scan, it to me, it's like trying to write with your toes. Me scanning left-handed OB scan is trying, I might as well try and scan with my toes. It's going to take me longer. But if from early on, when you're a student in lab and you re, and you become ambidextrous, like let's do some right-handed scanning, let's do some left-handed scanning. And, and how do we do that starting with our ergonomics and machine setup first before we learn how to actually scan, you know, yeah, it can be done. And it, it is, it does help to kind of relieve that. But like you said, only if you're going to be doing it correctly. Well, I was taught two types of exams left-handed and I can only do them left-handed. Yeah. So, you know, I'm fortunate that I was, that I was taught those two exams that way, but I think being um, training in both sides is important because you never know what you're going to get when you go up to the floors. You know, you may have to be, I've had to do some, I see you patients with my left hand and backwards facing. Yeah, their sure. So mm-hmm. you, you really have to learn how to be, how to just focus on the screen, regardless of what arm you're using. So yeah. that's a good idea. And actually we do teach our students um, right and left-handed cardiac scanning. We teach them both. Sure. They, we don't know where they're going to intern. Some sites just do right-handed. Some sites do left. And we teach them how to do right-handed from the left side of the bed also. So they've got three different strategies. So if they're sitting on the patient's left, their right arm is close to the heart, but the machine's at the foot of the table. So we teach them, you know, a a variety of ways to scan hearts with both hands. Um, We don't do that with the general students, and we probably should. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can really see how if you start early on, how it it rolls down. And yes, they do have to when they go into that clinic site, a stress to their clinical instructor. Well, I'm going to try this one left. Well, why? Well, they need to know why they need to be able to explain to them because in school we learned that it can help this. And then also maybe in their assessment of being assessed or is the student trying to use ergonomic, you know, applications in, um, in different exams and trying to do that, you know, and making them be graded on that. Yes. We actually do have a little bit of that in there, but I think it needs to be emphasized a little bit more. We do have some clinical instructors, and everybody does, that are just resistant. They aren't injured. They've been scanning for X number of years this way, and, you know, they're not willing to change or even let the student change. So there's always those that are kind of unwilling to change. But, you know, it's like Albert Einstein said, you can't solve a problem with the same thinking that brought you the problem to start with. You know, you've got to change that thinking. And absolutely, it's hard to get people to do sometimes. Especially the longer they've been doing it, you know. Yeah. Well, for sound ergonomic products, I was just curious about how do you guys test your prototypes when you get something that a company or, or something that you see, how do you test that before you kind of bring it out to the, to the public and put it on the website? Well, we're fortunate, Joan and I, that we have a lot of colleagues and friends um, in, in our community and in, and even in some of the other communities farther out that are more than willing to take something we have and, and give us some input. And, um, you know, we always say, if you'll take this and use it for a month and give us some feedback, you know, we'll, we'll let you keep this prototype or whatever. So we're pretty, we're pretty lucky in that way. We don't really have to 
jump through a lot of hoops. I'll test, uh, I would give stuff to my students to use and say, you know, give me some feedback. They're pretty open about it and they're pretty good about, you know, they step right up to the plate and say, you know, what they, they write down what they think. And um, so, and then what, you know, sometimes you can't anticipate that everybody in every practice is going to use something or how they practice. So once it gets out, a product gets out there, then we get feedback on, well, you know, I'd like it if this were different or, and then, you know, you have to be open to modifying it. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is, you know, we were worked in partnership with a company to develop a line of exam tables. And the problem that sonographers don't realize is that anything that's electric, like the height adjustable tables that are out of the market today, have gone through tens of thousands of dollars worth of FDA and electrical testing by the government. And any changes that are made to them or any alterations have to go back through those tens of thousands of dollars of evaluation. So, you know, it's easy to walk in. And, and of course, I had the same thinking when I was not aware of the, of the business side and the, and the manufacturing side. It's easy to go and say, well, it'd be really cool if this were here. Could you move this? Sure. Well, sure, we can move it. But, you know, it'll take a year to engineer it. It'll take a couple of months to run it through you know, FDA and, and UL testing. And, you know, it's not, it's not something that you want to make a change for one practice, you know, you kind of, and that's where a lot of problems arise with sonographers. They're not willing to take a product in the market and adjust their work habits to that product. They want the product adjusted to them. And that's fine if it's a, you know, a cushion or a small item that doesn't have FDA involved. Yeah. But whether it's, when it's a government regulated product, it's difficult to change without, and it's, and we do change them, but it just takes time. Sure. So, you know, we encourage people to look at an ergonomic product, which is going to be different than what they have. Yeah. Because a lot of ultrasound labs just use the same tables that the ICU or uh, ER uses for me that uh, is non-negotiable is they have to be electric because the I know my own practice, unless I have an electric controller right at my side, I'm not going to change the height of the table while I'm scanning. Sure. I'm going to get up. I'm not going to pump it. And quite frankly, being a patient on a bed that's being pumped is very uncomfortable because sure. you're bouncing as it goes up. Um, so for us, when we talked to the manufacturer, we said, we won't compromise on electric height adjustability. Sure. Other motors we can compromise on, but it has to go up and down electrically. It has to have the 500 to 600 pound capacity. Well, what, um, other than sonography, you talked a little bit about um, rheumatology, you know, applying ultrasound, but other than ultrasound application, what other careers do you have people coming to you for ergonomic products or ergonomic training from other careers? Um, the one group that does come to us quite a bit are computer users like people that are gamers that work in the industry that um, sit in front of a computer eight hours a day, creating the graphics for games or um, just that work that professionally work on computers all day, because it's a very similar type of workstation with very similar um, injury risks, including the dark room, because, you know, they have to really be able to have no glare on their screens. That's pretty much, who we end up working with. I have worked with some um, 
office assistants and, and um, administrative assistants for um, mostly for physicians, just their workstation. But again, it's a computer workstation. We don't tend to go too far outside of those two environments, ultrasound. And we have actually had um, been asked to look at like the mammography works workstation and, and the mammography work equipment. But we stay pretty much within what we know. Um, and it's mostly related to computers and ultrasound. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me up in Seattle, though, that you have some technology gaming computers. So that's kind of the hub for that up there with Microsoft and everything. So, yeah, but that's int- I mean, it's just so it's so true once you get to know injury. Yeah. That you're not alone in sonography. I mean, there's must, you know, job on the job injury. And like you said, uh, hard hats and weight belts have been applied to other careers for a long time now. And it's just um, us recognizing where we can impact our well, own. You know, it's like, you can't do, you can't be a, uh, you can't do x-ray without your um, dosimeter, your batch on mm-hmm. for radiation dose. It's just a part of your work tools is to have these good postures and these good behaviors. And, you know, they're not, they're not exclusive to us. They're exclusive to, I mean, they're inclusive of anybody who's, who is in static positions, regardless of what they're doing for long periods of time. Well, if you had to, if somebody asked you, Hey, what are your, what are the top five things that are causing injuries with sonographers? What would your quick list be? Um, too much abduction of the arms, regardless of which side, too much reaching, twisting your neck, Flexion and extension of the wrist beyond acceptable limits. And um, the fifth one probably would be, um, I think, trunk flexion. So leaning over. And you mentioned, you mentioned standing versus sitting. How much, what do you, what do you have to say about that? Because I know for myself, I had a lower back and shoulder thing going on for a long time. And when I started to go to PT, they said, well, can you stand at all? And I, I started to say no. And then I'm like, wait a minute, there's not a reason I can't stand. And I've just never, I, and we use the saddle chairs, which is great. But ever since I've started standing, my pain has not only been less, but it might, I tire in different parts of my body, my larger muscles, my legs, my hips, um, instead of my shoulder and my hand as much. And uh, do you yeah. see that in the field? What do you say? I, about? We don't see any we most everything well the number one injury is shoulder followed by neck and then wrist and hand um we have absolutely no reported injuries related to legs um which it makes sense because you consider the largest bone in your body the largest set of muscles they can tolerate a lot um they can they're intended to support weight for long periods of time so as long as you're standing you know with your weight evenly balanced and you don't lock your knees and you walk around um, periodically and stand on an anti-fatigue mat so that there's that little subtle movement with your feet. You really can stand all day long. It's not, it, I recommend alternating, you know, to give the muscles a chance to relax a little bit. I recommend sitting for some parts of an exam. Like if I'm doing, um, an abdomen, for instance, sitting for most of it and then standing up to do the left side, you know, and, and reducing my reach and, um, abduction. Um, I was a stander too. I stood for everything. Um, I was more comfortable standing. Um, I could move my feet around a little better rather than just sitting. We had one exam table that was an old B scan table and it didn't go up or down or anything. It was like four wooden legs and a slab with the mattress. <laughs> so comfortable for the patient too, I'm sure. Yeah. And it was low. 
So that was the only room where I could, where I had to sit. But yeah. I, I liked standing because I could move around and I could turn instead of twisting. I could actually turn my body. So I, I think standing is, is a, a great, um, a great way to scan. But I think for a lot of people, you need the variety. Sit sure. for part of it or sit for one exam or, sure. you know, um, if you do carotids, for instance, we recommend that you sit at, that you do them from the head of the table. So sit for that, you know? Yeah. Maybe. Do you recommend people stand or sit for vaginal scans? Um, I recommend standing. Okay. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of people who sit, I tend to stand and, and sometimes I kind of get that awkward, do you do arm over the knee? Are you trying to get, you know, around the patient, depending on their size and ability um, to, to move their well, leg? you should be working well. in between their knees. Yeah. So down at the bottom and bringing the machine down to the very end. To where their yeah. feet are. Yeah. And hmm. so not reaching around. Um, you can sit, I suppose. I just, I never really, I felt I could reach things better if I was standing sure. when I was doing endovaginal studies. Sure. And you're kind of locked into position with those. So it's nice yeah. to be able to reach around. Yeah. yeah. Do you guys find that there's certain modalities that students coming out of school are shying away from because of what they've heard about that type of practice and how it can be harder on their body or more demanding of patient number or anything like that? I've had a couple students that have been concerned. Um, I had, I've had, usually they're concerned about cardiac, about hearing that that's, um, but not not a lot um, because we kind of reassure them that we're going to show them everything they need to know to to stay safe, and they just have to practice that. Um, mostly, they just shy away from exam- from specialties that they just don't like when they're learning them. Sure, they don't focus as much on injury. I did have a student who had had um, some surgery um, and was concerned about using that hand. Um, exclusively. And, you know, I think we talked about how we could, you know, make sure that that was mitigated and I think she was okay with it. Sure. Well, that's good. That's, that's nice. I mean, I I wonder if over the years now that this, the ergonomic education and the research and the studies and the papers come out about MSI though, if that will be, you know, there'll be those ones that are highlighted with you know, the 90 something percent of these sonographers complain of this by this age. If, if, um, if those modalities will take ergonomics more care, you know, more concern yeah, about yeah, I hope so. I certainly hope in the fields where the risk is higher that they look at that and, and take more care of it. But the thing is, you have to remember that not all of our students, but uh, probably close to half to three quarters are younger. They're under 30. So it's like this won't happen to me kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're not they're not paying attention. The ones that pay attention are the older students that may have had some injury to a, a joint or um, are more worried about it or more aware of it. But it's always the younger students that, you know, are they're just invulnerable. Nothing, nothing will happen. To it's them. like when we're young, you don't you don't feel the fall the day before. And when you go older, you feel like you got hit by a track of off a little fall and slide halfway down the mountain and get up and keep skiing and if I fall now it's the end of my day it's like I can't take no day to get up yeah yeah the same reason a fetus can have its feet behind its head and have no problem with that and if we try to sit like that for two minutes we might be broken for good so yeah um well speaking to that then what is uh what do you see on the horizon friend breaking through for MSI prevention and ergonomic education for the future 
That's a good question. I, I guess I, I am not, I guess I'm more overwhelmed by the, by the regression I see because of the new users who aren't taught ergonomics. Mm-hmm. And so it's like the cord around the neck thing. It's like we solved that problem in sonographers 17 years ago. It's better. I'm, I'm just, I think Joan and I are both kind of stunned at how much, how many, how many new users are, are popping up and how, how they're just picking up a transducer without giving a thought to their body mechanics. And, and these are people cannot come in from programs. You're talking about the rheumatology ultrasound that was done bedside, right? And, yeah. you know, residents yeah. and mm-hmm. um, maybe, maybe even an office that has a nurse that has been doing something else. And they say, we'd like you to just do these quick scans. And, and it's not that they can't do them. It's just that they really, the training to do them should incorporate really good body postures and, and how you, how you actually do them. And you know, it's, it's a lot of physicians are doing their own and they're also doing surgeries and interventional procedures. So if they get injured from scanning, it impacts a lot of parts of their practice. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's really important to really get them aware of that. Um, And they need to understand what every, everybody throws the word ergonomics around, but they need to understand what it really is and what goes into it Mm -hmm. and, and the limitations of, the environment that affect it. And I think, I think more than, I, I guess I see that as the future. I see educational components for the non-traditional users being one of the most important uh, directions for the future of ergonomics because sonography is branching out so fast and so far that people are losing a handle on the best way physically to do mm-hmm. the work. Um, so I think that's the future of it. And along with that is um, these private offices also tend to go with whatever equipment is, is the least expensive. And it unfortunately has limited image quality, but it also has limited adjustability. Yeah. So I think the future um, from the manufacturer side is to take some of their lower end equipment and really incorporate a lot of adjustable features in it and incorporate the use of those features in their um, installs. So I think the future is we're not going to, we're constantly chasing the carrot, you know, we're constantly going after trying to get everybody on board. And I think that that's our future is just keep coming up with educational seminars, educational workshops, um, different users meetings like, Typically, we go to the classic ultrasound conferences, but maybe we need to go and see if we can do a presentation for the rheumatology group. You know, maybe we pursue new users. Um, so I think that's our future, to be honest with you. Hmm. That's it. Really interesting. And what about uh, in other parts of the world? Have you seen what ergonomic education and ultrasound looks like? Or have you had any exposure to that in other countries? I have been to Australia and Canada. Um, Joan's been to a few other countries. The problem is um, practicing ultrasound all over the world is so different. Canada and Australia and New Zealand have sonographers and they have injury issues. The Canadian sonographers are, are on board with, with us. Um, and we've been to Canada a few times to do some education and they're, they're pretty good about, about their own addressing their own issues. Um, 
and pretty much aware of the same things that, that we are. Australia um, was had some education into ergonomics. They, they tried to address it, um, and I think did a pretty good job. I think um, Great Britain did too. I think they had some educational um, components, and they were part. They were also part of um, the first industry standards consensus conference. So they, you know, they they're big on getting everybody, you know, educated on in ergonomics. Unfortunately, a lot of countries physicians do the ultrasounds, sure. and so you know, they have other things they're doing in their practices. So they may not be doing ultrasound all day long. But I can tell you, Joan's been to China, and we've actually met with some Chinese physicians here um, to talk to them about how they practice, and um, their throughput is pretty phenomenal. I mean, they, they scan very fast, and it's all physicians doing it. And, um, I mean, they can do upwards of 40 patients a day, but they only, do, they only do specific things. Like if you have right flank pain, it's the right kidney. Sure. So, you know, they're doing, but they're doing a lot and there's no real breaks. And so yeah. they are really going to be impacted by this injury. Yeah. Um, Joan also mentioned eye strain there. Right? Yes. Yeah. The rooms aren't dark enough. Yeah. That was a big problem. So she's seen a lot of it. And, you know, whenever we made suggestions to these, this group that we met with, they said, we don't have time. We can't, we have to keep, so that's a common theme. Um, in this country, sonographers say they don't have time, but when we follow them, through the day, we see that after they're done scanning, they go out into the work area and they're checking their cell phone or, you know, on email and say, well, they had time to do that. So they could have had time to set the room up. But they, uh, so in, in other countries where the physicians do it, um, unless the physician is doing a lot of it, I don't think they're really concerned as concerned as, um, we are. And they're probably not having the same injuries, the long, you know, same type of injuries that, um, that sonographers can get. Um, in. they can get some. Yeah. Um, it depends on what they're doing. Like if they're, if I know that if they're doing, for instance, scanning while they're doing an interventional procedure, they can end up with shoulder pain and, and they're looking down. So they've got sure. neck flexion issues. Sure. They, they can get some of the same, yeah. on how much ultrasound they're doing. Yeah. But if the less than they're doing, the less concern they have for how it's going to impact them long term. There's a variety of muscle activities in their day. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the note that we don't have the time or we don't have the, I mean, that's how everything, I don't have the time to sleep more. I don't have the time to exercise and take care of myself, but it all rolls downhill, right? I mean, eventually it comes to collect whether you have the time or not. So, so yeah, hopefully. To, and it, it becomes habit if you just keep doing it. I mean, yeah. everything does. It's like. You know, I'm trying to change some habits myself. Yes. I'm going to keep doing this every day. And then I'll just, if I don't do it, I'll feel like something's missing. Yes. You just have to keep doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, for one, just to wrap up the podcast, I'd like to thank you so much for trying to have an impact. I know sometimes you feel like, man, we've, we're, we're going backwards. We're not going forward. But I'll tell you from somebody that came from somebody that cared about ergonomics, it's rolled down and not that I haven't been injured and I haven't found myself doing stuff um, like leaning and, and pushing and um, but just to keep it in the back of our minds and finding new ways to introduce it into programs and, you know, possibly down the road CMEs and um, education for administration to kind of help advocate for us. I know as a sonographer, I really appreciate everything that you and Joan and sound ergonomics has, has tried to do. Um, It's very important. So. Thanks. 
we'll keep doing it. And we keep trying to work with the equipment manufacturers who are very good about making changes and have come up with lots of great ergonomic features on the ultrasound systems and in the exam tables. So, you know, as long as we can keep impacting the entire environment, not just the scenario for education, but the entire environment, I think we'll make a difference. It may be little steps, but you just have to keep, you have to keep hammering away at it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and keep educating people on the statistics. I know there's been some really huge surveys. I might ask you questions down the road regarding those, but that have come out with um, helpful statistics to say that this is what people are feeling and this is the impact it's having. Well, our last survey was 2008. So I think it's time for another one. Um, sure. I think it's nice to do them about every eight or 10 years and just see if, you know, what's changed, if anything. But again, you know, we're being inundated with all these new users. And so it's so hard, you know, if we just take sonographers and look at them, it might be a different story, um, yeah. which is important. But then we get new users and, and then it crops up again. So it's, it's going to be interesting. And we may actually end up doing a whole different type of survey that looks at physician users and sure. see if there's a difference and what that difference is. Again, Carolyn, thank you so much for sitting with us for the interview today and sharing your story and what your contribution to the field has been. And please keep doing what you're doing with sound ergonomics as we know it's benefiting so many people. And we really appreciate and extend our gratitude to you for that. Everybody, thank you for joining us for this episode. Please join us for episode number four, where we do an interview with Terry DeVos. And we will see you then.